Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. I am Ben Wager, along with my co-host Don Gibson. Hey there. And today, as we have often done, we are working within a series of movies or films that we have decided to kind of investigate and deep dive into in the current series that we're on is we're looking at film adaptations from play in the 1960s. We had done in our last, if that one person who listened to our last one uh, would have known that we did the 1950s. Now we've moved up to the 1960s. And today we're going to take a look at two films that were well-received and uh, very, very popular plays. The first one being Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And the second one being Barefoot in the park. So we're going to open up with Don giving us a little intro about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, so yeah, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is uh, a very interesting film. Uh, so it's uh, based on the Edward Albee play. Um, and he wrote another famous uh, play he did was Zoo Story. And he's really known for like digging at issues and making audiences pretty uncomfortable. Um, so a zoo story was a story of a guy in a park and they basically confronts a homeless guy and it seems nice at the beginning and then it just goes completely south. And then this is uh, the story of a, a couple in their mid 40s. It's not really told, but uh, and they're, they're li- they live in, uh, uh, on, the, on the campus of a small college. The woman and the characters are played by Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Elizabeth Taylor is the daughter of the president of the college. And so obviously she has, uh, you know, uh, a status. And then Richard Burton, Burton is a professor that married her. Years pass, some years pass, where he was an aspiring professor. The president of the college hired him and, you know, married to his daughter. Like he probably was, there's, and it's mentioned too, that, or there's references that maybe he was on track to be doing the same thing. None of that's worked out. And so we, the story starts out, with these two coming from a party at the that at the house, there was a big party um, with all the faculty, et cetera. And uh, so Elizabeth Taylor and um, Richard Burton, who uh, their their characters um, are named Martha and George, which of course is interesting given that uh, that's the same as the the first president and the his wife of the United States. They're leaving the party. It's really late. It's like one thirty at night. And they wander into their house and they're just hammered. And as soon as they get in, they pour drinks. And this movie is entirely about drinking. Everybody drinks the entire time. So it's, it's kind of exhausting, really. Um, and then we find out a young couple uh, that has just come, a guy that's a younger professor, played by George Siegel, and his wife are coming for a visit. And this is getting home at 1.30 and they're going to show up at like 2, 2.30 at their house. And so this is sort of the extraordinary narrative that's set in and basically it's th- that night and so we have a preamble of about 10-15 minutes with just the two of them and then George Siegel and his wife um, show up and they're offered drinks and then Martha and George just start yelling and arguing at each other insulting each other there's the point where you know uh, Richard Burton George is told to get something and he comes back with what looks like a rifle and he's aims it at the back of her head and it's like oh my god he's a shooter but it's just and then they turn around and the wife, her name is Honey of George Siegel, screams, and it's just an umbrella. But it's just there, there's just sort of this, this tension the entire time of what's going to happen next. So the film was, 
it, it did very well critically and financially. Um, I would say especially um, because uh, financially, because the, it starred Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, who everyone and they'd been together about three years. They met on the set of Cleopatra, but they had a very public uh, relationship and everyone knew that it was highly uh, stormy and lots of conflicts, lots of booze involved. And so everyone was like, oh, my God, they're actually going to like act out their their life on screen. And so people wanted to see that. And it did phenomenally well because of it. Um, a lot of people say this is Elizabeth Taylor's uh, best uh, film she ever did. And I have to say, like, it's really phenomenal work because we normally when we see uh, Elizabeth Taylor, you, you know, she plays we, you know, we did Cat in the Hot Tin Roof, uh, the last uh, uh, round that uh, Ben was talking about, the 50s. And she's not just like, a, you know, a pretty nothing in that, but she definitely is playing a beautiful woman that is frustrated in a relationship with Paul Newman that's that's sexually happening. And this one, she plays a woman. She, she gained a lot of weight for this. They shot it specifically in black and white because they put such heavy makeup on her that um, they, you know, she's a beautiful woman and they want her to look as worn down and, and haggard as possible. And boy, they do these really tight close-ups on her and, and she's just staring at you and she just looks completely out of it. So she really gets into a role as does Richard Burton. The director of this film is really quite fascinating. It's Mike Nichols. This is the, this is the first film he ever directed. So this is Mike Nichols is the guy that, that two, three years later did The Graduate. And obviously a lot of people consider that his, his great piece of work. But then he also did you know, many, many films, Catch-22, Carnal Knowledge, Heartburn, Primary Colors, Closer. He actually had a really active um, uh, career in film for four decades. He had a really active career in directing Broadway theater. He directed Broad uh, Barefoot in the Park, the Broadway production, through the early 60s, right to the end. One of the last plays he did was 2012's um, Death of a Salesman with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And so this guy was incredibly productive. And uh, this was his very first film. And um, he made some fascinating uh, decisions. Um, like, for example, he had a guy, and this is the first time he's ever in movies. He, he'd been in theater for quite a while. Uh, he also had a, he, he did a, a comic dual thing with a woman named Elaine May. And then he became a director, but he really had no experience in film. But when he went in, he uh, um, really came in with a strong voice. So originally he had a cinematographer, which was an old school guy, done like 50 films. And the guy says, no, no, we're shooting in color. We're not doing this. And uh, um, uh, Mike Nichols was like, he, 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 at the time, the thinking was art films or films that were serious. A lot of the European films like Fellini and Bergman, but anything that was a serious tone or a drama tended to be black and white. And anything that was more colorful, like a musical or some sort of epic tended to be color. And Mike Nichols was absolutely not. This is no way this is going to be a color film. And so he fired the guy and then he hired his own DOP. His name is Haskell Wexler. And one thing I'm really impressed about in this film is that the cinematography is just stunning. I mean, it's all black and white, but the way he lights things, the way he makes uh, her look is just, I mean, she just looked and there's scenes where she just goes to the fridge and she takes chicken out of the fridge and she's eating it. And it's really incredibly believable. We totally buy um, into her character. So one thing I did do quite a bit of reading about this film because I was reading, it's called Pictures of the Revolution. It's by Mark Harris. And it's about the five films that were nominated in 67, which includes The Graduate. But there's a lot of material about Virginia Woolf because they're talking about uh, his background. 
Um, so I, I reckon anyone likes films, this is a, a phenomenal book uh, to read because there's so much great uh, uh, background in it. So one of the things he talks about, uh, the author, Mark Harris, is what this film is so well known for is actually breaking the code. So at the time, this is so this thing called the Hayes Code existed for many years, from basically 33 to 34, all the way until this time, which basically meant, you know, uh, there can be no sexual representation. There can be no, like even married couples, you couldn't, you, they couldn't be standing in a bedroom with a queen size bed. Um, anything that alluded to sex, any, any sort of language. But then in the 60s, people were getting fed up with this. They were like, European films didn't do this. So people started going to see Fellini. So you could see, you know, some provocative language, storylines, whatever it was. Anyway, so this film um, had language in it. They included phrases like screw you, goddamn, hump the hostess and monkey nipples. And they that when they first went to the code, they said, you're never going to get that through. And they pushed it through anyway. And this is one of like three films that changed the entire code and, and how it worked. Yeah, I um, believe the uh, the MPAA rating. This was the first film ever to be rated. Nobody under 18 can be allowed into the theater. This this was uh, one of the first films to have that happen. Uh, and I agree, you know, when we were talking about Mike Nichols, who is, personally is one of my favorite directors of all time, my, um, my parents loved the graduates so much that they actually named me after the main character of that movie, Benjamin Braddock. So that's my first name comes from that movie. And uh, big Simon and Garfunkel fans. My mother went to high school in Flushing, Queens with Paul Simon. So uh, a lot of connections to Mike Nichols in regards to that area. I, I do uh, think that the cinematography was amazing, especially, you know, some of the non-conformist shots that you saw, like uh, they did a lot of over the head uh, from a, the ceiling looking down. And that was something that I noticed as being unusual for that time. As you said, there was a lot of tension in regards to the relationships of the characters. And man, that was very authentic. Uh, you know, when this film was shot, Elizabeth Taylor was only 32 years old. I mean, she, I was stunned when I read that she was only 32 because I mean, you know, she's supposed to be playing a 52 year old woman in this film and it's totally believable. She acts and looks and just feels like a drunken, frustrated housewife. And, and, and we haven't really talked about this, but the psychologically damaging games that they played against each other in these little mini battles in front of this couple, which were basically dragged into this because they, they kind of wanted an audience to, to their fights, it seemed like. It almost was like they wanted to, to have the, these psychologically twisting games that they would start playing on themselves, and then they would drag in this couple, and then they would use the information they learned from the couple to kind of start playing games on them. And it just, it was so dysfunctional. It reminded me of, you know, many of the times I've read about the darkness of academia culture and how you know they're so straight laced during the week and then this they just kind of let loose with these like you know the just total craziness that we started to see developing in the 50s and 60s on on, uh, on campuses and there was a real dark side to that and you know the image of, of the schools were so important but these these people would have these really uh, crazy uh, experiences in the private in their private homes and these house parties and things like that, and I think that 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 was really captured well in the brevity that could be uh, people could drive each other to in regards to you know these environments where they're so repressed in, in much of the time and then they get they let loose on the weekends and it's all binge drinking and wife swapping and all these things that we kind of are represented in this film. You know that was 
reflected, I think, also in the re real culture of those campuses, especially in those those high-end liberal arts colleges that uh, were really stuffy in regards to the, the rigid code that their faculty had to live under. The funny thing is, you know, so, you know, I, I teach film and, you know, you show, you show a film from, you know, a, a ways back and the kids are like, ah, it's an old movie. It's no big deal. You show this film, another film that comes to mind is Glengarry Glenn Ross. It is it relentless. And, and I've shown this both films. And then the kids after 20 minutes is like, what is going on here? Like, this is incredibly intense. And that underbelly, that that idea is uh, incredibly well delivered in this film it's definitely not the kind of film you want to see and you're just going to relax because it's you probably need a good hour and a half to decompress afterwards because it just it does not let up there's like maybe five minutes to the end where they're kind of nice to each other but they've just beaten each other to a pulp essentially and now they're like okay we're going to go to bed and probably tomorrow night we're going to start the whole damn thing over again but it's incessant and and the way it, it, the way these two, I, my guess is do what Burton and, and Taylor do in this film didn't do anything for relationship. It probably made their relationship a lot worse. And, you know, they I know they divorced at least remarried twice, maybe it was three times. But I don't think doing this film helped their relationship in any way whatsoever. If you look at the, um, you know, their their contracts for this film were two were really difficult for uh, for Mike Nichols because they didn't they had no contract they didn't have to do anything before ten o'clock like other people were getting up at the crack of dawn for makeup and, and costumes and set and everything and they could just scroll in at ten and and then they had a, this thing in their, they had a, a uninterruptible lunch contract and then they they had they could stop shooting at six so they were going out and having these big social lunches and they, and they were apologetic but they sometimes they'd come back at five and they and their contract was like they could stop shooting at six i mean when they were on set they were very professional and they worked very hard but man it, it this was the most expensive black and white film ever shot up to this date and i think it was uh mostly because of burton elizabeth taylor and albert uh albie is that his name albert albie yeah albie yeah yeah barbell there i think it's edward edward albie um, Edward Albee, yeah, yeah, their their salaries uh, were like six point five million alone. So uh, it was a you know for Mike Nichols it was a very difficult uh, shot, and he also admitted later on as he became more experienced as a filmmaker that he insisted on shooting this at a real campus. But the reality was that he realized that he could have just had this all as sets, and nobody would have known the difference. They, they did shoot part of it on on a set, but they they did the last part of the shoot on a campus, and he said yeah. later. That was a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. So I think he learned a lot through this experience. George Siegel was very good. Both of the supporting actresses, the actor and actress. Sure, her, Sandy Dennis is her name. Sandy Dennis. She was really strong. And, and you know, the intensity of that set. I mean, she was pregnant at the time of this film and had the miscarriage on the set. And so, you know, obviously there's a lot of stress and, uh, you know, a lot, probably a lot of grinding days that uh, really took its toll on, on yeah. these actors. Well, and she won. She and Taylor won uh, for the Oscars. And then Wexler won the cinematography. And then there was like 13 nominations. There was a couple other awards. Yeah, this is the first film that received, might have been the only film ever that has received a nomination for every category that it was qualified. Yeah. It was well received. Every, every uh, member of the, the four leading and supporting, they were all uh, nominated. And so this is definitely like, I, you know, I didn't read, I always thought of Mike Nichols 
you know, doing this film and then uh, The Graduate, everyone knows him for The Graduate. Then obviously he had, a, you know, really, he, he worked really well his whole life. He didn't just have a successful two or three films. He really, right to the end, he was always doing things that were incredibly successful. I, I was amazed to see how powerfully he went into the film industry. He had no background in film. And there's a good story about when first day of shooting, there was some problems, didn't go the way it was supposed to go. And this PA, this production assistant, was wrapping some cable up and he turned to Nichols. He said, uh, well, it's just another movie. And uh, that guy was fired on the spot. That's and Nichols. And he, he actually reflected on it later. He said, you know, I was a total ass and I realized that. But I also wonder, like he also in this film, he demanded three or four weeks of rehearsals ahead of time, which is very, you know, play director oriented. The amount of time, The Graduate is just a fascinating film for that. The amount of time and energy they put into casting and rehearsals, et cetera. And so I, I would, I think this film and The Graduate stand very well today. I think they're, I know we're talking about The Graduate, but that's the second film. Those are definitely like, I mean, I guess they're dated in a little bit and there's some sort of you know, uh, aesthetic that's a little bit different, but I would recommend as long as you can put up with it because it's a tiring go, um, but it's great acting, great storytelling, beautifully shot. And one thing I do really like about the film is it, it does feel a little bit like a play. This is one thing I'm interested in what we're doing is we're always, we're looking at plays adapted to films, but this one, it, it goes outside a little bit. There's a yard, they go driving when they're totally drunk, which is great. Um, they go to a bar and dance a little bit. They're really in the living room and the bedroom of this house. So I can see it's basically, it looks like a play that they've expanded the environment a little bit, but it feels totally like a movie. Like I don't feel, I didn't feel like I was watching a, a play adapted in, in, into a film. I really thought I was watching a film the way it was shot, although the way it was structured, recommended highly. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned uh, Mark Harris, who, you know, is uh, somebody in, in, we would love to have him on our show. Well, that's, you know, yes. Mark Harris, if you're listening, please know you're always invited to come and please. speak to us. Great because, book. you know, I also want to pitch his book, Mike, he wrote a book about Mike Nichols, Mark Harris, and there's a lot of, of really interesting information about this film, along with, you know, Mike Nichols' whole life, which is fascinating. His, he has a fascinating life. You know, Pictures of the Revolution, great book, but also Mike Nichols' uh, biography written by Mark Harris, also a great book to read. I'm going to read that. I didn't even know. This movie, if you haven't seen it, definitely uh, give it a shot. Um, as Don said, it definitely a work has held over, you know, it's been almost 60 years, I guess, right? Um, it's 66. Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, yeah. yeah 50, 56. A great challenge would be to uh, have a drink every time Liz Taylor has a drink and see if you can pull that off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great drinking game. Drake, uh, and also if you, you know, uh, if you're not having a good relationship with your wife, this will re make you realize that it's not as bad as you think. So <laughs> anyway, all right, well, let's, uh, I think we can move on. Um, the next movie um, film that we're looking at is Barefoot in the Park, which was uh, released in 1967. It's a, based off a Neil Simon um, play. He wrote the screenplay. And it was directed by Gene Sachs. Uh, and it starred Jane Fonda, Robert Redford as main stars, and then the sporting actors, uh, Charles Boyer, Boyer yeah, and then Mildred uh, Natwich, Natwick, and uh, both uh, well-regarded uh, actors. Uh, Mildred, I believe, also played the same role, and Robert Redford played the same role in, in the play. Interesting enough, this play is uh, kind of a, a play about the changing roles and dynamics of um, 
society going from more of the traditional 50s and, and moving into more of the 60s and the partnership or, or relationship between a husband and wife, the evolving um, difficulties that can happen with newlyweds in, in this time where, you know, we're seeing a, an empowerment of women in certain areas and, and becoming more of a, a stronger part of the decision making and maybe how that is reflected and or frustrating. And so this film is, uh, you know, basically, we have these new newlyweds, uh, Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, and um, he's a very successful lawyer, up and coming lawyer. Uh, and she, they recently marry and they, they, they stay at a hotel for their honeymoon. I think it was the, um, one of the ones on Central Park. I can't remember which one. And uh, interesting enough, uh, you know, they they stay in the room and it's implied that they're just having sex for like six days straight or whatever for their honeymoon. And there's some very scanty scenes. Jane Fonda is very sexual in this movie. And uh, Robert Redford tends to be more the, you know, stiff upper lip career guy. And, um, you know, the adjustment of when the honeymoon's over for her is shows that, you know, this isn't the person that... I thought he was, and there's some questioning, but in the hotel, there is a funny scene with the maid where she's saying, you know, basically, do you believe this? And she's like, honey, I don't maid or something. And, and that ended up that the person who that was, which I, I barely recognized, but I did was Doris Roberts, who was, uh, everybody loves Raymond, the, the mom on everybody loves Raymond. And she had this little, this, you know, probably in the start of her career or somewhere in the middle of her career, uh, she had that little role in there. And I was like, oh my God, that's uh, Ray Romano's mom in his, his comedy show. So that was, uh, I really <laughs> enjoyed, that was like a big thing for me to, to identify that actress because she, you know, she was obviously very, very famous later in um, her her life uh, playing that role. So they get out of the hotel. Uh, she's responsible for finding an apartment. She gets this horrible six floor walk-up apartment. There's a lot of running gags on uh, since it's a Neil Simon comedy, there's a lot of gags on things like uh, the walk up and the stairs are killing everybody as they come up. Interesting enough, when they uh, become an international film and in France, uh, they had to move the, the apartment up to the 10th floor for the dubbing of the, because in, in, in Paris, apparently having a six floor walk up is nothing. Everybody had to do that. So they wouldn't have thought that was funny. So they had to push it up to the 10th floor to make it funnier in, in Paris. They're in much better shape, I think, than Americans. But so, you know, there's a weird eccentric neighbor who, uh, you know, opens, he's an older man who's, uh, you know, a bit of a Don Juan with the ladies, but, uh, you know, is, uh, has to use their apartment to get into his because he's behind on his rent. So he has to like walk along the, the, the roof of the building kind of on the edge past their apartment to get into his window. And so they get to meet him. And then the, the mother, um, Jane Fonda's mother is, is a big uh, role in this and, and, and basically, those four characters are kind of the core of, of the play. And Robert Redford, who I, you know, I wasn't really impressed with him in this film, to be honest with you. Maybe it's the character and the way it's written, but I, I felt that it was just a little bit too straight-laced and deadpan for me that, you know, knowing Robert Redford as an actor, I just felt like uh, he was, and he played the role on Broadway and was very surprised when he got offered the, the film role. He wasn't expecting that to happen. His understanding was that didn't usually happen, but they offered him the role. He took it. Uh, he had not been successful in his last few films when he had tested out Hollywood and wasn't really interested, but he, he moved on and, and he was considered um, very solid in the, in the film. I thought Jane Fonda was amazing. I thought she really, uh, you know, really filled that character out well. Uh, and uh, she just showed a lot of, um, 
just a lot of charisma on, on screen. I was really impressed with her as, as an actress in this film. But I think the real scene stealer was uh, the neighbor, Boyer's character. He, I really enjoyed his uh, kind of openness to the world and, and trying to push their boundaries, even though they were much younger than him, and that kind of relationship, and then taking them out and pushing the boundaries of Robert Redford's kind of break, trying to break him through his uh, kind of uh, rigidness that he had as and his expectations of his role in society. You know, in the, in the very predictable way, there's a buildup to them not getting along. And then eventually they, you know, a big separation scene and then they come back. And it's just a classic Neil Simon play. I think it's not overly complicated. Uh, it was well done. I mean, it's, I don't think it's necessarily held out over the years, but it was very well received um, when the film came out. And it was, it was quite profitable. Yeah, well, you mentioned the, the so the Robert Redford thing. Yeah, I think his character, it, I mean, the thing about Robert Redford is he's a beautiful specimen. And that's that's a lot of actors. And so is Jane Fonda. I guess Jane Fonda's got more, you know, whatever, acting chops or something. But, you know, if anyone's seen The Way We Were, if this is not, a, that's obviously not Neil Simon, but it's very similar of someone that's way out there, Barbara Streisand, and a guy that's much more, rigid in his philosophies and then they that's that's more of a you know romantic tragedy or whatever they definitely split up this is obviously a comedy so the tone is different but i would say the relationship is quite different uh similar uh barefoot and um way that we were and they're both spending they stepped on on the edge of central park a little bit as well so i was kind of surprised at how similar like aspects were so yeah and it's interesting i just want to get the robert redford thing he originally was cast to do graduate and they all thought that he was going to be it because he looks like a California super guy. And Ben, uh, da, 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 Dustin Hoffman does not. And everyone was really surprised that Dustin Hoffman got that role um, because he looks, you know, he's Jewish and he doesn't really look like the California boy. But anyway, just to get back, the Robert Redford's look definitely works really well for him. I don't know if I'd ever call him a great actor. He always just sort of stands there and looks heroic or beautiful. And I don't know if he really does much more. I'm not a, you know, he started Sundance and everything. He's certainly done a lot of, inter he's been involved in the production of a lot of films. He directed Ordinary People, but I don't know if I could name a Robert Redford film that I thought he nailed that film. And I just, I just see this as a typical Robert, Robert Redford performance. You know, I, I, I disagree. I, I think he's got a great sense of comedic timing. And I think movies like uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, Fair enough. The Sting, I thought he was very good with The Sting. And uh, there was a movie that came out a little bit later called, I think it was called, was it Sneakers or? Uh, oh yeah, Sneakers, he was in Sneakers. There's a yeah. huge cast in Sneakers, yeah, yeah. And uh, and that, I thought he was very, he was very good in that as well. And um, and also, uh, what's the what's the one he did with Dustin Hoffman um, as the two reporters? All oh, the President's oh, Men, all the President's You're right, actually. Fantastic. I stand corrected, all the President's you know, Men is a good film. I think, uh, you know, I think that uh, unfortunately some of the character choices that he's had to take have created that, uh, you know, depending on his looks and not necessarily yeah. a strong like, depth of character. But I think as yeah. he developed as an actor and got to be able to pick those roles a little bit, be more a little selective, yeah. I think what we saw a real development in him focusing on the characters and, yeah. and producing very well, strong roles. Well parried. I would, I agree Butch Cassidy and I don't know the Sting. The Sting's okay, but uh, and and President's Men are, are two solid films that he, he he does well. Jane Fonda, I I don't know how you can defend her in this film. I, I she must she's still alive. She must be so upset looking back at this. She she's, she shows her 
what are what, he said something about her qualities as an actress. Yes, every once in a while she's walking around her bra, and I, you know, I guess those scenes are pretty good. I thought she was so annoyingly clingy, and I know it's Neil Simon comedy. I get the the jokes of the, the there's the constant how high up the, the the apartment is, and then the newspapers being stacked, you know, emphasizing how much sex they're having. I, I know there's all these like one offers, but I to me came across as this really shrill, difficult person. I mean, he came back from his job. He got this great trial to be involved in and he just had to work that night. And he wasn't like really a, a difficult guy. He just, I just, I prepared for the but court tomorrow. You're confusing Jane Fonda with the character that was written. I mean, she, that she plays, she plays this spoiled sheltered child who finally getting to kind of spread her wings after she got married because that was how things worked back. And and she, I thought she nailed that. I mean, she played the that exactly. She, she played that, yeah, because you didn't like the character doesn't mean that it wasn't played well. And so I just want to point out that she played that person, that those women at that time, that was the, the way they worked. You know, we're going to, you're a perfect little pretty woman, and then you get married, and then you can kind of be a, a, a voting wife and set up and, and support your husband. And then, you know, be the, also on the other side of that is the, the little sex kitten kind of role as well. And, and she was trying to play those roles, but then also realizing that she wanted her own choices and things. And, and there was a real battle. I, uh, and I think there was some layers to that character that you might be dismissing because you just didn't like the character. No, I'm not. I'm not dismissing you. I'm just saying. Not dismissing I, me. I'm not saying you're dismissing, dismissing me. What I'm Jane saying Fonda. is very valid. I, but I, for me, like, listen, Paul Simon, clearly, this Paul is what he Simon does. Or Neil he does, Simon. Not Paul Simon. Simon uh, Art Garfunkel. Uh, no, uh, Neil Simon. Neil Simon is known for farce. This is what he does. And, you know, uh, California Suite, Biloxi Blues, Plaza Suite. There's a whole bunch of them. You know, it's all about timing. It's all about coming. It's all about entrances and ex exits. And, you know, just the zany energy of what's going to happen next and you know like for example the the upstairs neighbor is this guy that's like 60 something and he got, has to climb a ladder to have this crazy little suite that he has and so there's these very clear simon jokes that are oh he also did the goodbye gar girl and I, so his tone i have no problem with his tone i really enjoy it but this seems to me that maybe it was great in the theater because there's all these ent entrance and exits there's all these like laughs but as many of the reviewers talked about the film, uh, the play and the film, there's no story. You know, there's just opportunities for like gags. And I kind of thought it was him trying to like just finding his craft. I think he had a couple of plays to go till he really was good at it. Because I, I was for me, I was after half an hour, I was like, OK, is there really another hour of this? Because this isn't going anywhere. Well, I, I think, you know, as, as I said, I, I don't think that this film carried well and I think no. there was a lot more humor to it, to the, to the people who saw it at that time and they connected to those characters and understood that life a little bit better. And it's something that you and I have not had to experience or live in that time. And it might sure. not necessarily have resonated in regards to the way that those characters were written. It would have just seemed like a dated slapstick kind of Neil Simon experience. It doesn't carry past that moment for me personally and you know the that comedy and that and that genre of comedy is something that you know my family connects to through new york and and there's just there's familiarity to it to me that i found very amusing and i thought that the way that jane fonda chose to play that character she nailed the character that 
that Neil was trying to write and she, the choices she made, I felt were real. I just, I didn't think Robert Redford played his character that well, but I don't think his character was that developed anyway. It was just there, to, the straight man yeah. and the bits. And I thought the, 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 uh, the other supporting actress, she was very strong as well. And I think she was, she might've been nominated, I think for- He for was. Uh, yeah, overall, you know, it's just a light comedy that, uh, you know, if you missed it, you missed it. If you saw it, you saw it. Anyway, so I think this film compared to Virginia Woolf is you have to make excuses for this film for people to watch it. Whereas somebody at Virginia Woolf, I would just warn them and say, hey, it's two and a half hours of people arguing. I don't know if, if you're up for it, you'll love it. But this film, you have to say, oh, well, you know, it's from 67, that's different. Like for me, there was no real interesting camera angles. It looked like a film, like a, a film of a stage production. I mean, they have some outside scenes with a couple of car driving and, and there's the park scene. And the barefoot in the park thing, you know, the most exhaustingly simplistic metaphor that I just, it's like, stop pushing me on this metaphor of running barefoot in the park. But it is, in terms of the films we're doing, Mike Nichols directed the Broadway production, huge success with Robert Redford. And um, and then another play he did like a year or two later was The Odd Couple, obviously became a successful film. And then the same director, Sachs, did Barefoot and Odd Couple. So I was, I'm fascinated by the all the tight the community is. And they're all just like yeah. kind of working with each other on all sorts of different things. And Mike Nichols and Neil Simon were very tight as well. I mean, they, they knew each other, yeah. interacted as well. If you read Mark Harris's yeah. book, you'll, you'll see a lot of connections. Yeah. Between the two well, basically at the time, anything that Mike Nichols touched was gold. And then anything Neil Simon wrote was gold. And these two yeah. were like, if it's a Neil Simon play, you know, directed by Mike Nichols, forget it. It's just going to, you know, sell it forever. And, and, but independently, these guys did phenomenally well for a very long period of time. And they were just, they're like, you talk about the, you know, familiarity of New York Broadway setting ideas. These two were the princes of Broadway. I, I agree. There was a lot of connection within the bones of these films, you know, in yeah. regards to the, the creativity and the direction and the writing. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we covered these two very well. As we move on into the 1970s, uh, we're going to explore uh, this relationship between adapted films from plays. And we'll let you know uh, on our next episode of Cinema Around the Corner, what those films will be. So have a good day and we'll see you next time. See you later.